If you think about it, just about every notion that pops up into your head is tied to a metaphor. We tend to imagine the various abstractions of our lives through comparisons with the things we can see, touch, taste, and hold. Our religious lives are no different. This is Logos-ish. Today we break down our religious metaphors and we explore why they are so important with Dr. Ryan Bonfilio of the Candler Foundry. Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome back to Logosish. I'm not usually the person who does the introductions, but uh, uh, here we are. Um, Garrett, how's it going? We've got Garrett and John today. Brian is off in space somewhere. Garrett, how's it going in Florida? I heard you had a trip to the ER vet last night. Wait, is is Brian metaphorically off in space somewhere, or is he literally off in space somewhere? Hopefully just metaphorically. Is he literally metaphorically off in space somewhere? I'll take it all. <laughs> yes, so I was at the vet last night for a couple of hours, but everyone is okay. Dogs are good and nothing that a little bit of cough suppressant and antibiotics won't fix. So everyone is on the mend. How are you guys? We're good. We are very familiar with that life. We went out of town for a week and a half and then came back and had to take our dog and one of our cats to the vet. So we are daily giving a cat and a dog medicine and one of them is much easier. (laughs) The dog, the dog is easier. She swallows anything we put in front of her. But she's also been on medication now for two weeks and we just re-upped for another two weeks, so. For an ear infection, (sighs) anyway. In the long run, it seems like she's gonna be the harder one just because of the commitment that we have to put into it. Yeah, but uh, let's let's turn this pet podcast. <laughs> I was gonna say, is this our side project now? <laughs> um, yes. What's wrong with our pets? <laughs> uh, but let's let's take a turn into and introduce our guest for today. Today we have Dr. Ryan Bonfilio. Um, he is the assistant, or excuse me, he is a the assistant. Oh no, <laughs> a assistant professor. Oh no, I've already botched it. I'm sorry. I'm I'm. So six and a half months pregnant, so I'm going to call this brain. Um, Congrats. Thank you. Let me, let me try again. Do you want to take the breath and then just go and John will lovingly edit it out. Yes, that is. Oh no, if, if it's a host mistake, I never edit it out. Great. That's why I don't make these. Professor, what is, I don't even understand. Assistant professor, if you, if you want to just make it easier, you can just say assistant professor of Old Testament. Okay. Other stuff won't make sense to most folks anyway. So this this is my entirely my fault. I did not write whole words when I wrote down your title. Oh. It says A S S T P R O F P R A C T of O T. <laughs> you could so, just say he teaches Old Testament at Candler. <laughs> that could work too. Yes. I'm not really into titles, so however you want to describe me is fine. Superstar of the Old Testament, Dr. Ryan (laughs) is with us today. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about metaphor theory and some other things. John and I took Dr. Bonfilio's class at Candler in our third year, and it was one of our favorites, if not our favorite. So we are thrilled to have you today as fellow OT geeks. Thank you for being here. I'm sorry I've completely botched your introduction. No, that's no problem, Sarah. And John, it's good to be back with you both. And Garrett's good to be on with you too. Yeah, it's wonderful to be with you this morning. So Ryan, how did you get to, to be an Old Testament professor in, in this life? Yeah, give us a little bit about how you got here. 
Well, I love that question, Sarah, because I think my parents are still asking the same question. How in the world did their son end up being an Old Testament professor? This is not how things started out for me. So just a quick flashback. I grew up in a nominally Catholic home. Uh, My parents are lovely, but religion and faith was not at all a major part of our family's experience except on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve and Easter. I was a math science kid growing up. I hated reading. I probably had some mild forms of dyslexia. I was just not into the humanities. Math, science, sports were all my thing. So religion, all that stuff was not on the radar screen. Went to school, went to college. I wrestled in college. I was a chemistry major. I worked at Merck Pharmaceutical and I was all set for this path into chemistry and sciences and pharmaceutical research. Then things started to change. My first career out of college uh, was as a college wrestling coach. So again, not another step towards Old Testament professorship, but this strange journey that I was on involved science and chemistry and nominal Catholicism. But somewhere along the line, the Bible and ministry uh, came more clearly on my radar screen. I actually came to faith in college uh, in, in many ways. I had some important faith experiences in college. And as a wrestling coach, uh, I was dirt poor and loved what I was doing and willing to do anything that someone else paid for at that season of life. And so the university I worked for and coached at had a tuition reimbursement program just to encourage its staff to continue to be involved in learning. So I walked across the street and just started to randomly sign up for seminary classes. Now, keep in mind, I had very little humanities background, no religious background. So I was coming into the world of seminary absolutely blind and having no clue what I was getting into. And I loved it. I loved it. And so I remember learning Hebrew and Greek and systematic theology and Old Testament, I would literally study on the bus on the way to away trips for our wrestling team. And this is really where I got hooked on religion and faith and theology and scripture. And so I just started, you know, year after year went by and I would take one course here, one course there. And eventually I got to this fork in the road where I had to decide what's, what was my future? Was I going to double down in this area of coaching? Would I go back into the sciences, or would I pursue this growing love and passion of mine uh, to study scripture and theology? And long story short, I decided on the latter, and I retired from wrestling after about six years wrestling coaching, and I enrolled full-time in a Master of Divinity program, and the rest is history. Uh, In that time at seminary, I had the most amazing experiences, learning, being challenged, growing in my faith. I had an incredible community around me and through that process of seminary, I really fell in love with the Old Testament. It was completely strange to me, not just because I didn't grow up reading the Bible, but because the Old Testament is really strange at times. There is some wacky stuff in here and and, and most of it I didn't understand and didn't know what to do with as a person of faith, as a member of a church. I didn't know how to interact with this strange and sacred text that we call today the Old Testament. And that just really sparked my imagination and it piqued my curiosity. And I knew I wanted to learn more and grow more. I loved teaching. In fact, I think what I was doing as a coach really was just a form of teaching. So it really wasn't that different in the end. And so eventually I pursued a PhD in Old Testament. And that's what brought me down south here to Atlanta to do a PhD at Emory University in Sarah and John. That's where we got connected as I was teaching through the Candler School of Theology 
uh, near the end of that time. And um, so that's kind of the, 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 that's what got me in the room for Old Testament uh, stuff in this weird background of a wrestling coach and chemistry major and nominal Catholic, all of that stuff sort of took a long while to come together. I love that. That's <laughs> a really great story. I think it's actually really cool to, especially uh, your story, at least coming from a seminarian's point of view, you view your professors and I'm like, oh, these must be the most holy of holy people and they must have everything figured out. And I am just a mess of a human being, like trying to remember to get all of my papers in on time, but being entranced by the material and the passion of our professors. And I think your story reminds me that, you know, we're all human and we all have these wonderful stories to bring to the table. Thanks for for sharing your passion through teaching. I didn't take uh, your course while I was at Candler, but I know that Sarah and John gushed about it all the time. So I feel like in a way that I'm like maybe three degrees removed as one of your students. (laughs) I appreciate that, Garrett. (laughs) We all are on this journey. And, you know, for me, um, my story is winding. It's a bit messy. It's a bit unexpected. Not many Old Testament professors have wrestling coaching as part of their CV, but I think it's part of this bigger unexpected story of what God does in our life. I could not and did not plan things this way. And that might drive my parents nuts, but it also is the beauty of our story that that God leads us in unexpected ways. And that just seems to to be one manifestation of his grace and direction in our life. And so I it's it's not the normal story, but I'm I'm grateful for where I am and where I've been. Yeah, and uh, we can certainly relate to being uh, entranced by and fascinated by the Old Testament. I did not come into seminary expecting to be an Old Testament person. And after one class, just couldn't stop taking other Old Testament classes. I fell in love with Hebrew, even though I wasn't great at it at first. (laughs) I never understood Greek. To me, Hebrew feels like art and Greek feels like math. So Greek feels like Greek. It's all Greek to me. Yeah. So that, that is very relatable. What do you think it is about the Old Testament that kind of pulled you in initially? I think it's, a, it's the complexity of these stories. There's so much different type of literature from Genesis to Malachi. We have poetry, we have narrative, we have parables, we have the Psalms, we have laments, there's in the, pro- the prophets, the wisdom literature. It's such a diverse range of literature to wrap our minds around. And I love that that it's as if the people of God in the Old Testament needed to explore all of these different ways of giving expression to their experience of God, that one form, a letter or a gospel wasn't enough. They needed all of these various ways to wrap their minds around the complexity of the world and God's role in that place. And I think that creates room for us to enter into these stories and to be fascinated and sometimes confused and bewildered by what's happening. I love the messiness of it. Sarah, you talked about Hebrew being more like art and Greek being more like math. And I think that's exactly right. And I would go a step further and say that I think the New Testament can feel more like math and the Old Testament more like art. The New Testament gives us clearer directives, accounts of Jesus, the letters of Paul. In the Old Testament, it's it's harder to figure out. It's harder to sort out what's going on. It invites this creative, imaginative uh, engagement with these texts. It invites us to say, how is this scripture for us? How does this direct not only how we live, but the ministry of the church today? And that, I find it that when, whenever I get to teach on the Old Testament, which is such an, a joy and privilege, 
every time I teach, I'm learning something new about what I find are endlessly fascinating texts. Yeah, I think, especially thinking about the Old Testament and its complexity about the very intentional mashups that pop up here and there, but especially in, in the Torah and the Pentateuch and those first five books where, you know, you have these stories that have been told two different ways with mm -hmm. often very different details that have been put together and either juxtaposed or just outright mashed up together <laughs> into one single piece. And then you're left to kind of look at it and go, what am I going to do with this? Like, what am I going to do with this tension, with this juxtaposition? And it really, I think, brings out the desire of the writer to push you to reflect and go deeper. Great way to say that, John. I mean, even in the, you know, the, the very first pages we open up in the Old Testament, Genesis gives us two accounts of the creation story, as many, many of you know, and, and they're not, I wouldn't use the word contradictory, because I think that's sort of a modern category that the biblical authors didn't think through, but you can't just smush them together and come out with one uh, homogenous story. They are different accounts of the theology of creation, of God's role, humanity's role in creation. There are different stories that give us different ways to approach the topic. And I love that both are in there, right? It's messy. It's complicated. You can't iron them out or smooth them out. But in a certain way, the Bible, in that sense, canonizes diversity and difference. It says there's not just one way to tell this story. There's not just one way to think about creation. There are multiple ways in our and our scripture and our canon manifest that for us. I think we would do well to be more biblical when we get to these matters and recognize that, no, even our scriptures give us this example of how to bring difference and diversity together in a unified whole. Ooh, that is an excellent way to frame that. <laughs> I always think of the, the two creation stories as like uh, giving us a just a fuller picture of God and God in uh, creation. That's how I try to explain it to my parishioners when they ask about what could be perceived as contradictions. Yeah, I, I like the idea of embracing diversity, though, and putting that forward for us. I think the first story that made me fall in love with the Old Testament was Noah. <laughs> Noah, I, I think coming into seminary first year, you get thrown into Old Testament right away. Noah and that story was what was like, oh my God, the Old Testament is so much more crazy and fun and wild than I ever thought it was because we get this picture. We are from the time we were babies fed the story of Noah and, and Noah's Ark and it's on our nursery walls and in our books. And we kind of memorize this version of it. So just reading it closely in seminary and having those, as you said, those juxtaposed between mm -hmm. different sources and, and learning sort of the, the uh, intentions, theorized intentions behind them, behind uh, like having to, I, oh, I should have reread this before I started talking about it because it's been a while, but like two like what, clean animals and like four unclean animals and ravens versus doves. And yeah, that was just a, a really fun, remarkable realization that like, oh man, I don't know the story at all. Yeah, that's right, Sarah. I mean, it's just like the creation story. It's even more complex than the creation story because in in the first three chapters of Genesis, we have one creation story and then another. So they're kind of separated by, by verses and chapters. But in the Noah story, 
there's clearly two traditions. There's two ways of telling the story of Noah and they've been sort of spliced together. So there's not one version, then here's the other like creation, but they're sort of interwoven. And one of the things that scholars do is to try to pull those pieces apart and be able to try to figure out, well, what were those first two stories about Noah? How did they go? And I think what's amazing when you look at the Old Testament, but this is a good example, the Noah story, it's not just random. There's not just random details. There's a reason why in one story, Noah brings two of each animal onto the ark. And in another story, Noah brings 14 or seven pairs of certain animals onto the ark. There's a reason that gets worked out because one of those stories ends with Noah making a sacrifice. And if you only have two animals and the story ends with a sacrifice, you have mass extinction. So you need more animals if the story is going to end with a sacrifice. Now, the story that has just the two animals, it ends with a rainbow. It ends with this sign of God's covenant. And so, you know, there's this internal logic. And I think both stories on their own have their own theological message and beauty, but then interwoven together there. Again, it's making space for multiple versions of the story and multiple understandings of how God interacts with the world to sit side by side with one another. Yes, yeah, and I could I could talk about Noah all day long, uh, especially you know thinking about the recent scholarship that's been done around ecology and environmentalism and the idea of you know beginning to eat meat in the harmony with nature prior to that, like that whole that whole arc from the garden to Noah. But I do want to like bring us back around because we had planned to talk about metaphor today. Sorry. <laughs> and, you know, no, this is good. This is good because getting a sense of the diversity, I think, brings us into the conversation about metaphor because so many faith communities don't really appreciate the breadth of metaphor that's available to them in scripture and in these, these texts that they, they talk about as holy and sacred. But, you know, nobody, like, like a lot of people just don't have a good sense of, you know, what's available to them, whether it's the idea of God as a mother bear or a lion or, you know, especially those animal metaphors. Those were the ones, you know, when we were in class with you that were really surprising to me. I, I was just like, I thought I had read this and apparently I did not. Yeah. So why don't we start with talking about what a metaphor is, just very basic, and then why we need metaphors when we talk about God and spirituality. Metaphor, you know, it's one of those things that metaphors are all over the place. We can't help but bump into them, not just in scripture, but in everyday life, but we're not always aware of it. And a metaphor, and this sort of brings us back to maybe grade school or middle school English class, but a metaphor literally means a transfer of meaning from the Greek metapherine. It means to transfer meaning from one thing to another thing. And the way that typically works is that we have one object, thing, realm, idea that we understand, something that's very familiar to us. And we use what we know about the familiar thing to help describe and wrap our minds around some other thing, something that's less familiar or maybe more abstract. So just take an example from scripture, the Lord is my shepherd. For the ancient Israelites, shepherding was something they knew. They were shepherds. They knew shepherds. They knew the tasks and responsibilities and skills and all of the things that shepherd did. So they would take from that idea of what they know about shepherding and they would use it to think about and describe what God is and what God does and what God's roles are in the world. Well, we do this in everyday speech all the time. I mean, think about how we, we speak about time. We talk about 
spending time and budgeting time and wasting time and losing time and earning time. And we could go on and on and on. And behind almost all of these things that we say about time is the metaphor, time is money. We know what money is. We're familiar with the cash economy. And we use that familiar thing to describe something that is more abstract, this idea of time. And so we're often not aware when I say I you know, I I didn't budget my time well this morning. I'm not thinking, how can I use a metaphor to describe my schedule this morning? It's just, it's sort of knit into how I think about time. These metaphors are deeply knit into our cognitive processes. So we use them and we're often not aware that we're even using them in the first place. So what are some of the most common metaphors that you would tend to think of when you are thinking about spirituality and divinity especially? Yeah, that's a good question, John. And and I want to make a distinction here between the metaphors I commonly hear in church services and liturgies and prayers, and then the metaphors that scripture gives us. So on the first hand, when we pray, when we're in liturgy, the church defaults back to what is really a, a fairly small set of metaphors for God, for instance. So we talk about God as father, We talk about God as king. We talk about God as judge. And sometimes, although it's less common nowadays, I think we even talk about God as warrior or something that gestures towards God's strength or power uh, or sovereignty in those ways. So we use these metaphors. You even think of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. It leads with this metaphor of thinking about God as father. So we have these metaphors that are very common, especially about God. And those metaphors are all found in scripture. They are all deeply biblically based. But I think what we often don't recognize is that scripture gives us a far more diverse and expansive range of metaphors for God. It's, it's So in a certain way, our metaphors for God are only a small subset of the Bible's metaphors for God. And I think that's one of the challenges we face as people of faith today is how do we expand our metaphorical vocabulary to match the vocabulary of scripture? Yes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a hundred percent on board with that. You know, I try very hard to use some of those more expansive metaphors within spheres of liturgy or just conversation those are the areas where where I try to really insert some of those in a little more, you know, especially thinking about how you can kind of put a lot of the common ones you just listed for, for king and father and so on. Really, it feels to me like those fall under the same metaphorical tree anyway. You have this sort of masculine power figure. And, and with that, you lose, I think, the ability to relate a little bit in, in other spheres or domains of life. And that makes it, I think, very difficult then to really feel an intimacy in your spiritual experience. If the metaphor that you're using for God is relegated only to a, a very specific set of life experiences that are not always necessarily that common, hopefully war and kingship are are not that common, right? Well, we pray. (laughs) I don't think that's the reality in most parts. But yeah, I mean, touching on especially the language that we use in metaphor, we've been doing in my context, a lot of work around anti-racism and decentralizing of power through whole sorts of means. So those folks who are engaging in this work are having to even 
think about the way they talk and uh, describe God and their spiritual experiences. And I often catch myself, you know, referring to God as father and, you know, using that male centered language and some, and I challenge myself to incorporate God as creator, God as mother, God as something else. But also at the same time, it's meaningful to me to refer to God as father, not for the power, but for the fact that I didn't necessarily have a stable father figure always. I always had a father figure, but there was always something comforting to me about that. And This father figure that I find in scripture is one that challenges me to see the world in a different way. And so, which is much different than the other father figures that have been. So I even think of, you know, the parts of scripture that sort of entrance me in the New Testament, it's always been the Psalms. So whenever God sort of shows up on earth, that my favorite word, my favorite theological word is theophany, you know, and I always think of God coming down like, you know, a staircase in a big ball gown, (laughs) right? Uh, Theophany, you know, there's majesty. Um, but my favorite psalm is Psalm 46. So when God stares that uh, metaphorical staircase in my mind, there's earthquakes and tidal waves and there's a war and like like a mother, you know, hearing the ruckus of her children puts an end to all of that uh, in a sense. And so describing that to my parishioners, you know, like it's very the language kind of is back and forth and mixes a lot of things. But again, the, the diversity of and the importance of metaphor i think is necessary have you seen ways in which metaphor has just completely muddied everything to the point of inconsequentialism or or essentialism yeah i think there are difficulties with metaphors in in many ways and one of them is we're already talking about that we often operate with limited metaphorical vocabularies and some of the problem with that is that the metaphors we default to especially about god in some contexts and we encounter some people who have had bad experiences with fathers judges kings right so they because of what they've experienced from those domains in real life it's hard for them it, it, the metaphor becomes a barrier to understanding god if you've had an abusive father and the predominant language you encounter in in church or in prayers is god as father that could be a barrier to connection now maybe on the other hand you see the metaphor of god as father as redeeming your less than ideal encounter with the father. That's certainly possible, but it also can be a barrier. And so I think we need to be sensitive to that. Mm -hmm. And we also need to remember that the language we use about God doesn't just reflect uh, what we think about God, but it also frames how we understand God in the first place. That is to say, metaphors are like a a pair of sunglasses or a pair of lenses. There's something that we look through and, and the metaphor begins to shape how we understand the world. I'll give you an example. So we sometimes talk about the church as the kingdom of God, and that's a biblical metaphor. We encounter it in the New Testament, and there's nothing wrong with it by any means. But if you're thinking through a life in the world through the metaphor, the church is the kingdom of God, and we have this kingdom metaphor in the background, then what is sin? Well, sin is something like rebellion, or sedition, or insurrection? And how is sin dealt with in a kingdom if sin is rebellion, or insurrection, or sedition? Well, it's put down. It's violently, or forcibly, I should say, removed either through exile, or imprisonment, or maybe even capital punishment. So that's that metaphor 
frames even how we think about sin and punishment. But let's say we change the metaphor. Let's say now we start talking about the church as the body of Christ, an equally biblical metaphor also found in the New Testament. Well, if the church is the body of Christ, what then is sin? Well, if through that metaphor, sin isn't rebellion or sedition or usurpation or something like that. Sin is a disease. Sin is an ailment. Sin is a sickness, right? And we don't treat sicknesses and diseases the same way we treat rebels or usurpers to the throne, right? So how we understand, this is just one example, but how we understand sin and how we respond to sin and conceptualize God's response to sin can be framed by the very metaphors we choose to, in this case, to describe the church. And so Garrett, in that sense, I think there's nothing wrong with either necessarily, but we need to be mindful of the way that how our metaphors for God and our metaphors for church and faith and other things, how that can shape how people understand who God is and how they relate to God. And there are some real implications about where metaphors take us in that regard. I really appreciate that point. And it really brings out a portion of how the metaphor functions, especially within the context of the narrative, because so many of the kingdom of God references are backed up by these little narrative pieces here and there that are subversive of a more traditional idea of kingship. You see Jesus doing things that that involve a lot of healing and regeneration and service. acceptance and service and 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 resituating the ideas of leadership and kingship into a, a new position where the hierarchy is kind of flipped upside down. And so the kingship metaphor operates on two levels. You know, one is the more traditional level, and you get that within the kind of apocalyptic visions and the metaphors that are associated with them. But then also you have this subversive leadership model that's also sitting underneath. And I think that creates a tension that perhaps we don't always grapple with in the same ways that we might grapple with some other things because either we miss it or we don't have time because a deeper literary study is, is very difficult, especially if we're doing something like preaching where it's like you've got 10 minutes to make one point and then walk away. I've seen people try and fit 12 points in five minutes. So I don't know, John. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point, uh, how metaphors can be direct, but also give us a different... Uh, yeah, anyway, um, I was going to say that this feels like a, a good time to ask about what a dead metaphor is and when metaphors become dead. Yeah, this is really important, Sarah. So it, it's especially important uh, dead metaphors are when it comes to language about God. So let's think first, just what is a dead metaphor in the first place? Well, a dead metaphor is a metaphor that we use so often and so habitually that we actually forget it's a metaphor. We actually think it's sort of a, a definition. The, the technical term is that the metaphor becomes lexicalized, meaning that it's sort of reduced to a lexical meaning or a meaning that you would find in the dictionary. So a, a good example of this is when we talk about furniture, I'm sitting on a chair and I might refer to the leg of the chair or uh, maybe the arm of a couch. Well, technically and literally what we're doing when we say leg of a chair and arm of a couch is we're, we're using the metaphor, furniture is a body. And in particular, furniture is a human body. So we take the parts of a human body and we map them on 
to the parts of everyday household furniture. But it's so commonplace. It's been used so often that when I say refer to the leg of a chair, no one thinks I'm speaking metaphorically. They just think, no, that's actually a leg of a chair. And that's literally the arm of a couch. And so in those cases, we would say the metaphor has died or has become lexicalized. And, and for all intents and purposes, it's not functioning or being recognized as a metaphor any longer. No big deal when we're talking about furniture, right? Now let's think about dead metaphors with respect to God. When a metaphor like God is father dies, and I think it's on its deathbed, if not, if it hasn't already died, we no longer think of it metaphorically. We think of it as an ontological dictionary definition that God is father. And that's not what metaphors are meant to do. This great uh, literary critic, Paul Ricoeur, says that a metaphor should always have a part that's true and not true about it, that it should activate different parts of our brain. So when we encounter a metaphor, part of our brain should be like, yeah, that's totally right. God is like that. But then there's another part of our brains that should be like, well, that's not completely right. God is like other things. And there are ways in which God isn't like this thing. So there's an is and an is notness with every metaphor. And when metaphors die, the is notness part of our brains or that recognition that a metaphor isn't a definition, it's not an equal sign, that part of our brain shuts off. And then God becomes an ontological father. God by definition of is father. And therefore, by extension, God is nothing else. So if God is father in this definitional way, then God can't be mother, let alone lion or bear or rock or refuge or water or fountain or so on and so forth. All of these other metaphors then are sort of ruled out when God is father, for instance, becomes a dead metaphor. And I think that's that presents a challenge for us because what was meant to be this evocative way of thinking about an aspect of what God is like becomes ossified into one concrete form. And I think the biblical word for that, when we try to take one aspect of God and concretize it into one manageable form, I think the biblical word for that is idol. That's what an mm -hmm. idol is. It's, it's a one aspect of God, not necessarily a wrong aspect or a false aspect, but it's one aspect that gets ossified into a totalizing statement but no, 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 this is only what God is. God is not other things. God is only this thing. And that's what happens with dead metaphors. I'm not going to lie. That just kind of blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's the good news. There's an antidote to dead metaphors. Dead metaphors can live again, or if you want, dead metaphors can be resurrected, but it takes a lot of work. And I think two things need to happen for dead metaphors to come back to life. The first is, again, we need to diversify our metaphorical language. Only by learning that God is other things other than father. And I'm just using this one as an example. By finding places in the gospels where Jesus speaks of God as a mother hen or finding places in the prophets where God is described as a lion, or you mentioned John, a bear. You know, we need to expand our vocabulary. And when we come to realize that God is all of these other things, that helps begin to trigger in our minds that when we say God is father, we're not saying God is only father, or that's, it's less of a definition. It's more of an evocative framework. That's the first thing. And then the second thing I think that helps bring dead metaphors back to life is related is that I think scripture by example, gives us permission to create our own metaphors. 
for God. So not just to know a wider range of biblical metaphors, but for you, John or Sarah or Garrett to say, well, what language can you use to express what God is like to you? What things from your experience in life and particular context and social location and background and families and denomination and all the things, how can those experiences help you put into words what God is like? I think scripture invites us into that process of creating new metaphors for God. We're not limited to the metaphors that scripture has used. Scripture in its generation of new and imaginative metaphors invites us into a similar process. And I think that can help us too, and that it gives us freedom to imagine God in different ways. Yeah, I think one of the things we talk a lot about is a desire and a need in our religious context for curiosity and creativity. And I I feel like that's something of what you're bringing out here too, is recognizing that there is a, a certain lack of health in our spiritual lives when we, we lose some of that cre- curiosity and that creativity and we fail, we, we get limited and boxed in by certain ideas in our heads that we should have from the beginning acknowledged to be inadequate in some sense, right? You know, it's the Karl Barth thing where he's like, mm-hmm. I cannot speak of God, but I must speak of God, but I'm going to be wrong anyway. And we're going to work through that together. He, he, I'm sure said it much more arrogantly, but you know, it's, it's that, I feel like that's the area we're in right now. And I think a lot of uh, church members and people who are just curious about spirituality, I think they, it's not just, it's not that they lack imagination or creativity, but I think they perceive that such creativity and imagination is not permissible, that their task, what faithfulness looks like is repeating what the church has always said, you know, is, is having the right answers. And so I think the church has struggled with this idea of creativity and imagination and allowing theology not to be something that just comes down from the top, from the academy or something like that in creeds and confessions, but theology is something that can bubble up from from below can bubble up in communities and churches and people with with and and through people who have never gone to seminary or never read Karl Barth or anyone else for that matter. I, I think we need to empower and invite lay people to say you are theologians too. And as much as theology is just means speaking words about God, that we are all theologians. We all can speak words about God that resonate with our experiences and who we are. Yeah. And I think I've probably used my quota of Karl Barth references for this year. (laughs) This is my second in two episodes. So (laughs) to be fair, the last one was a joke and Brian started it. Well, I've completely lost my train of thought now. (laughs) I'm really good at doing that to you. um... (laughs) Just totally derailing everything. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I work alone. alone. That is wise. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I think that one of the ways that we get back to this is by by Bible study. I know in my context, my parishioners like to say that they want to be biblically based and they feel this allegiance to the Bible and treat it a little bit like a black and white instruction book instead of like a living, breathing document to engage with. And so part of literature. Yeah. I mean, part of my mission, I think, is as a pastor is to to get them to maybe consider these parts of the Bible that they overlook or that encourage, especially the Old Testament, creative engagement. I like to to bring them to some of the weird Levitical and Deuteronomistic like 
particularities of the Old Testament. I I made a joke about like planting a tree a couple of weeks ago with one of my farmers because there's a piece of, is it Deuteronomy or Leviticus where there's, it's like how you would, you plant a tree and you, for the first three years, you just have to like let it go. And then the fourth year is a sacrifice and then you can eat from it in the fifth year. Anyway, it just, it fell very flat like it is right now. <laughs> um, but I, I think they like when they hear this, they're like, that's in the, where, where is that? Like, well, let's look, you know, let's, let's explore and let's have some fun with this because there are really cool things, little treasure bits all over the Old Testament. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Sorry. We <laughs> always, I think, could read a little deeper and a little broader, you know, it's very easy to get caught up, especially in the narrative bits, you know, especially the narrative bits with, with moral sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Fable-like qualities, parable-like qualities where we can extract a lesson of some kind and we lose the little details and the little small bits that uh, show up in the other genres of literature that are contained within the whole holy scripture canon and corpus. Yeah, you know, with parable, you mentioned parables, which of course we encounter in, in quite a high density in the Gospels, but there are also some in the, New, in the Old Testament as well. If you think of a parable, it's really just an extended metaphor. It's a metaphor that's writ into a, na- a really small, uh, tightly constructed narrative. And it's saying, okay, let's imagine a faith or your relationship with God like this. There once was a man who had two sons, you know, and it's just that is a metaphor being worked out into a story. And there's not one answer. There's not one meaning of a metaphor, but it invites multiple understandings, right? We can read metaphors from the, you know, the prodigal son. We can read it from the perspective of the older son, the younger son, the father. We can map those different characters onto different realities in our life, whether it's God or literal parents and siblings. There's so much that we can do with the metaphors. And I think uh, with the parables, excuse me, I think that's why Jesus taught in them. He recognized that in these little stories that there was potential to learn and grow and shape and transform his disciples beyond just thou shalt and thou shalt not, or here's your, you know, 213 question and answer confessional that you need to memorize, right? These stories create space for different ways of understanding and different ways of describing faith. Ryan, you are so just brilliant. And it's so fun to listen to you talk. And um, I wanted to mention that you are also Candler's director of the Foundry. Can you talk a little bit about your work with that and what that is? Yeah, sure, Sarah. I'd love to. So I wear two hats at Candler. One is the Old Testament professor hat. And with that hat on, I do normal Old Testament professor things. I teach classes and I write about the Old Testament and so on and so so forth. But I also wear a different hat. And that is as the director of a new initiative at Emory that we call the Candler Foundry. And what the Candler Foundry is in a nutshell is that we are trying to take the best of what typically happens at seminary, in-depth engagement of scripture, theology, church history, ethics, all of these things. We're trying to take the best of what seminary has to offer and to bring it to people who probably never will go to seminary. We're trying to take it off outside of our campus and outside of our degree programs and make it accessible and engaging to lay people, to lay ministers, to pastors, to activists, to nonprofit leaders. We want to sort of take seminary and turn it inside out. We want to, instead of saying, 
hey, here's theological education, here's learning, come to us. We want to say, how do we bring what we do to where you already are? And so that's one of my, my great passions is how do we make seminary-like courses and other experiences available to other folks, to people in congregations like yours or people in communities, not only just in Atlanta, but throughout our country. So we are, we are new, we're about two years into this new initiative, and we are developing several different programs that are trying to take seminary-like experiences outside of our campus and away from our degree programs. Can you talk a little bit about the specifics of some of those programs? Yeah, I would love to. So one of them that I'm really excited about is something called Courses in the Community. And these mm. are uh, short courses, usually four to six weeks. They're taught at a seminary level by Candler faculty, but instead of being taught on campus and part of our curriculum, they are taught in different churches. Sometimes they're taught in person in local Atlanta churches, but we also, and especially during the pandemic, we have taught dozens of these uh, courses uh, with churches and other community partners really throughout the country. And it's a way of saying, look, we think that lay people, folks who don't go to seminary, are really want the in-depth engagement. They just don't have the time to do a 14-week semester. So we're trying to give them a bite-sized version of what happens at seminary while keeping the high level of discourse. And beyond that, we're also trying to say, look, this is not just a standard seminary course, but we are trying to connect the topics that we typically teach about at seminary to the questions and issues that are facing our community partners. And so just as an example, I teach a six-week course on the Bible and poverty. That's thinking in terms of the biblical theology of wealth and poverty in the scriptures, but also connecting that to the real issues surrounding impoverishment, hunger, homelessness in very specific communities. So we are doing more and more of these courses in the community, and I'm so excited to be engaging uh, different congregations that way. I teach a number of them, but I also have my faculty colleagues teach a number as well. And I know we're big fans of Theo Ed, where you have those, those bite-size, I, I call them bite-size, some of them are actually kind of long, but those <laughs> TED Talk style conversations and monologues and what's the word I'm looking for? Lectures, though I don't want to make it sound as dry as a lecture. They're all very interesting and deep and, and passionate and entertaining. What about that like TED style format spoke to you when you were thinking about starting that up? Yeah, thanks for asking about that, John. Theo Ed is another one of my passions. It's a, it's a for those who don't know, it's a faith-based speaker series that seeks to bring together leading thinkers in the church and the academy to give what we say is the talk of their life in 20 minutes or less. So what we're really trying to do is do for the Bible, theology, and spirituality what the really popular TED series has done for technology, entertainment, and design. That is, we want to make the best learning available in a format that is accessible and engaging for lay people. And that's really the genius of the TED series. And that's the inspiration is that TED has been able to mobilize incredible speakers who have really important insights and perspectives on topics that matter to the world. And because of their, you know, 20 minute or less format, it means that you can actually in a very, you can have access to these ideas and these great thinkers in a really digestible format. I always joke that, you know, you can listen to a TED talk or a Theo Ed talk in the time that it takes to walk your dog or pick up your kids from soccer or here in Atlanta uh, to go about one mile on the downtown connector during rush hour. But, you know, we we're trying to make these mobilized, accessible, but still high level modes of engagement. And um, we've done about six Theo Ed events uh, in Atlanta over the past couple of years. And we have 
now almost uh, a couple dozen amazing TheoEd talks on our website, theoed.com. And you can subscribe on the podcast uh, and listen to them audio. You can watch really high quality videos of folks giving uh, TheoEd talks. And I'm really excited that as this, this program continues to grow in 2022 for the first time, we're going to begin to take TheoEd on the road to different cities in Atlanta, uh, di different cities outside of Atlanta. We'll still do an Atlanta-based TheoEd once a year, but now we're going to go to different cities across the country, bringing the TheoEd model uh, to them. It's very exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And one. I know. I look forward to using my continuing education funds to travel to one of those. So I, I have love to see you there. <laughs> so, so I do want to switch back to metaphor for just one more second. I have a super nerd question for you, and I've been waiting to waiting for just this moment to ask you this question because I'm I've been reading a lot of stuff about consciousness and physics and all of these sorts of things. And at some point, I drifted into reading uh, metaphors we live by, like mm -hmm. often John book. And one of the things they do near the end of the book is make this argument that essentially people think essentially entirely in metaphors. Mm -hmm. And that when we are trying to approach the world around us, which does exist, but when we're trying to approach the world around us, we never quite get to it because we never get beyond the metaphors that are in our head. And I just was curious if you had any like off the top of your head reflections about that idea in particular and how it, how it shapes uh, just the, the general human experience, not even just a spiritual experience, but the general like every day, what is that kind of idea if we take it to be true do for us? Yeah, you know, I think that book that you referenced is a really important one in that it launched sort of this wide swath of interest in literature on metaphors and how they work and how we use them. And what Lakoff and Johnson are really observing is that a metaphor isn't this artistic figure of speech or isn't always in it, an artistic figure of speech that we intentionally use to give some flourish to our writing, for instance, right? So I think of the poem, my love is like a red, red rose. You know, that's a, a very deliberate artistic expression that's drawing upon the trope of metaphors. And that does happen in literature. And throughout history, people have thought of metaphor strictly in that sort of literary flourish mode that we just use it to make our language sound more beautiful. What Lakoff and Johnson are recognizing is that metaphors are often used subconsciously. We're not, we're not intentionally trying to use a metaphor. The metaphors we use are so deeply knit into our cognitive processes that we're not even aware that we're speaking in metaphor. So an, an example, if we say, oh, I'm feeling up today, meaning like I'm feeling, you know, energized or happy, we are at a core using a metaphor that describes uh, good emotions or happiness as a directional item. There's something that's up and feeling the opposite of that is feeling down. So what Lakoff, and now we don't typically think of that as a metaphor, I'm feeling up today or I'm feeling down, but Lakoff and Johnson and other cognitive linguists say that that's because this, these metaphorical constructs are so deeply writ into our cognitive processes that we're not even aware of them. So I think that, I think what their claim is, is that our way of interacting with the world is deeply metaphorical insofar as we understand human experience, human emotion, our movement through the world by analogy, by analogy with things that are very concrete, directions, 
bodily expressions, things like that, that these concrete experiences we have come to shape how we understand all of the things in the world from emotions to love, to time, to God even. And so I think that's, I think that's what they're trying to get at when they say that metaphors happen in the brain and at a cognitive level. Awesome. Very good. Yeah. We talked a lot about that embodied experience in the last episode. And, and so it seemed like when I came across that passage, like it would be an interesting connecting point as we try to draw small little threads between the different conversations we have each week on this podcast. Very cool. Well, I think we're getting close to time. So we'd like to spend a little bit of time winding down each week, trying to have some positive and uplifting thoughts. And usually we do that by uplifting. There we go. There's the direction. There's the metaphor. Okay, we're done. We're finished. We're <laughs> at the high point. There's another metaphor. But yeah, so we, we try to end on a positive note each week What by talking about what's bringing us joy or if nothing is bringing you joy at this present time, like what's getting you through the week. <laughs> Though hopefully you've got a little bit of joy somewhere. So I'm just going to open it up, guys. What is bringing you joy at this present moment? Did I already, I already used Ted Lasso, didn't I? <laughs> Um, so I need a new joy. But you um, finished it finally. Yeah, we finished Ted Lasso last night, and that was spectacular. The first season? Just the first, yeah, the first oh, season. It's amazing. It's, it's spectacular. I may have gone online and bought a Richmond jersey last night <laughs> for a fictional football club. Um, anyway, um, yeah, uh, that that's, I'll just use it again, even if I've used it before. <laughs> last time it was. Well, you can. This time it's finishing Ted Lasso. And finding out it stays good all the way through. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) It's Um, a hilarious show that has a really beautiful soul to it. I mean, it's, uh, I I was not expect, I I expected hilarity and all of the funny stuff with it, but I didn't know that it would have this other dimension to it that was so real and just beautiful, I thought. Yeah. I turned to Sarah about halfway through the series and I was like, what is different about this show compared to other TV? And sat and thought about it for a little bit and then realized that what I was seeing on the television screen was characters that are handling their problems like real adults instead of, you know, sort of transposed teenagers who, you know, because there's so many TV shows where it's like, if you would just talk to each other, this would work out. I know it would ruin the drama, but all you need is just the one conversation. And then, you know, like in Ted Lasso, people are forgiving each other. They're like talking to each other. They're acting like grownups. They're taking and... accountability. It's just delightful. I can talk. We should start a, a side Ted Lasso <laughs> A watch through, a Ted Lasso watch through podcast. Yeah, could we do a, could we do a theology of Ted Lasso? There you go. <laughs> that could be half of season three. Um, what about you guys? I don't know if it's bringing me joy, but it's bringing a lot of joy to the house. Uh, sort of the other side of the Ted Lasso coin. We just started watching Always Sunny in Philadelphia again, where they talk to each other a lot, but as children, uh, these group of adults. <laughs> and it just makes me feel better that I'm like, at least I sort of have my life together a little bit more um, than these folks who own a bar. And uh, yeah, it's been a really good way to kind of decompress. So nothing stressful, but it's just reminding me is like, yeah, there's just funny things. And some things are just, you just need some of that like, 
nonsensical humor in your life. What about you, Ryan? I would say it's here in Decatur, Georgia. It is the last week of school. And so my little guy, Leo, is seven and he's finishing up first grade. And I just, I am enjoying his sheer delight and enjoyment in anticipation of the summer. And it just brings me back to days with before work and before, you know, being an adult when the summer was just this amazing gift, this time for play, not progress, not professional development, not production, just pure joy and play. And so I love seeing that in Leo. It just reminds me that that there's more to the world, there's more to who we are than work and all of the pressure we face to produce and perform on a daily basis. That's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, let's just bring back summer break for adults too. (laughs) Kane's thought we'd be working like five hours, 10 hours a week by now. So that's, that's a summer break. We can split it up. It'll be great. We'll have a great time. John, what about you? <laughs> Can I not say Ted Lasso? Sure. No. I'll allow it. <laughs> so so I will say, and this is this is a total shout out, entire endorsement. People have been telling me to go to Edmonds Oast in Charleston, South Carolina, a really great brewery for a long time. Been entirely resistant to it. The, the best way to keep me from going somewhere is to recommend it to me. You, you need to like just so casually, <laughs> casually slip it into my like Google feed or Twitter feed and, and let me soak it up by osmosis. That's great. But if you want to push it on me, I'm like, no. But we went to Edmonds Oast yesterday to meet my cousin and their big thing is like beer and fried chicken. And they do both exceptionally well. And their Korean fried chicken, which is a, a nice assortment of like gochujang and stuff like that is is phenomenal. And so I would recommend that fried chicken and, you know, a delicious, wonderful experience out on their patio. So Edmund Zost, if you want to advertise <laughs> on this podcast, I'll continue saying this for money, but we got at least one free one on there. That is true. I cannot speak to the beer, but the fried chicken was great. And their Coca-Cola top-notch. That canned (laughs) Coca-Cola right out of Mm that with the ice and everything. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today and for bringing your wisdom and your wit. We are so thrilled to have you. And it's just always such a pleasure. And thank you for taking time and spending time with us. Your earned time. Giving. Giving time to us. Giving us time. Not wasted at all. I'm getting a lot of Phantom Tollbooth vibes right now. So <laughs> no, it was great being with y'all. Thanks for the invitation. It's great reconnecting and best wishes in your ministry, your podcast and 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 all the things. Thank you. So Ryan, where can people find you if they want to look up more of what you're doing? Yeah, thanks, John. Um, you can find me on Candler's website, but also if you want to go to this new initiative that we are doing that's taking seminary beyond seminary, you can go to candlerfoundry.emory.edu and there you'll find links to our courses in the community, to our TheoEd talks, and to many other new initiatives that we are starting up. That is really wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Those of you at home, thank you so much for listening, especially if you've made it to this point where I'm going to tell you once again to like, subscribe, rate, buy books, do all of those wonderful things that you can to help support this podcast. You know, we really appreciate all of the 
the input and the support from the folks who are listening at home. So have a wonderful week. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logos-ish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at logosishpod, and we ask that you please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast so that we can help get the word out about all the stuff that we're working on. And we'd love to have your feedback as well. Have a great week.